0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. There is much talk these days about something called identity politics. Which basically says that there are political arguments that focus upon the interests and perspectives of groups with which people identify. This could be our race or gender, age, sexual orientation, and a whole host of other groups that identify in, in, in those particular areas. It is argued nowadays that if you, you don't even have to actually be a member of one of those groups, uh, particular groups, in order to identify with that group. For example, a a man can identify as a woman, or a white woman can identify as a black woman. Uh, Whatever you choose to identify with, you then can proclaim yourself to be that. The sky is really the limit. Well, these absurdities, though, are rooted in in a truth, Like most falsehoods that take a truth and twist it and pervert it, there is a truth here about identity. And the Apostle Peter, for example, says that what people do is, he says, untaught and unstable people twist these truths to their destruction. And so in our rejection of the perversion about identity, we don't want to reject the truth about the importance of how we identify It is true that we have an identity, and that identity defines who we are. The Bible, for example, divides humanity into two basic groups, those in the first Adam, those in the second Adam. Who do you identify with, the first Adam or the second? The outcome for those two different groups are radically different. At the Olympics at Rio on Monday Olympic divers David Boydia and Steele Johnson spoke of their identity, which scared me initially as they began to talk. But standing on the platform prior to their dive, these two men quoted Philippians 4, 5, and 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and so forth. Then they bumped fist and executed a dive which earned them a silver medal for the U.S. team. Johnson said of Boidia, I've learned so much from this guy about diving, about life, about faith, about being a man, that I wouldn't be where I am today without this guy teaching me along the way. And Boidia admitted that when he focused on diving, when he focuses on diving, he begins to define himself by that, he says, which tends to make his mind crazy, quote, but we both know that our identity is in Christ. He told NBC, Uh, Johnson shared a similar statement. He said, the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is, gave me peace. And it let me enjoy the contest. And I think that's somewhat, in obviously a different context, what Paul's saying to the Ephesians. You've got all kinds of things going on, and you have all kinds of things going on, all kinds of stresses, all kinds of things that might make you anxious, all kinds of things that we don't know what to do or how to handle it or how to make sense of it. But when we're rooted in Christ, when we have our identity fixed, when there are certain things that we know about ourselves, about who we are, then those other circumstances fade. They become less significant, and they don't threaten us. We have our security in Him. And so I want to ask you today, do you identify first and foremost as being in Christ? The Apostle Paul says that doing so is critical to how you live in this world. We don't simply do this individually either. In unity or in communion with one another, we also have our identity. We are God's people, plural, not just His person. So we find our identity in Christ. We find our identity among God's people. It's us. We are God's people. And so he has, as we read in Ephesians, um, or excuse me, yeah, as we read in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul has already stated That Jesus has come to the world ultimately to reunite all things. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Christ is the center. And so he's already begun that operation by way of the church, which... Uh, is an example of how God takes a divided world and unites them into one. In this case, today, he's going to be talking about Jews and Gentiles. And just look at us. There is more diversity here than you might think. We get to thinking about everyone's background, their experiences, different ages, different um, situations they've grown up in or gone through. All kinds of things, God has taken this disparate group of people from the world, called them out, brought them together, put them together, and united them in Christ. There is only one thing that has made this possible. And Paul's already referred to it in chapter 1. That is the exceeding greatness of his power. That same power, he said, that raised Jesus from the dead is doing this in us and for us. And so, Paul begins this passage by using the word remember. The Bible frequently uses or calls us to remember for the simple reason that we are so prone to forget. It seems easy to remember our differences, our prejudices, and the offenses that are committed against us. Paul calls us to remember other things, specifically the two great obstacles that prohibited them, the Gentiles, from coming to God and to the church. The first was their state and condition of sin. Remember, he's already talked about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that they were dead in trespasses and sins, that in fact they were dominated by the principalities and powers, the devil, if you will, and his minions, as well as our own lusts. And then in addition to that, he said we were under the wrath of God. That was our condition, and that kept us from being able to come to God, to have fellowship with God, to have communion with God. The second problem was that they were outside of the plan of God and they had, didn't have status. They did not have, talking about the Gentiles here, they had no accessibility, if you will, to get there, to, to come before God. And so, if I might illustrate, they had a terminal disease and they were born outside of the hospital where the remedy was available. So they had two problems. It's one thing if you have the disease, but you're born in the place where the remedy is. That's why it's so important to be born into a Christian home. To be born into the very place where the Word of God is, where the remedy is. But if you're out there, and you don't have Christian parents, and you don't have the Christian church, and you're born outside of that, now a, a child born into a Christian home has a sin problem too. He needs to be born again as well. But he's at least born in the place where the remedy is. So you got the Jews and the Gentiles in the Old Covenant. And then in the New Covenant, we're going to see the parallel between the church and those outside the church. So the world was divided into the two main groups, Jews and Gentiles. And uh, so what he's calling on the Gentiles to do is remember what their past condition was. In remembering this, they could come to see the greatness of God's power in overcoming these two great obstacles uh, and in how God rescued them. It would be hard to exaggerate how deep the division was between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews began to speak of the Gentiles as dogs, not human beings. Gentiles had similar divisions, for example, Greeks and barbarians. It was impossible it, uh, to imagine how these two groups could ever come together. But the exceeding, exceedingly great power of God made it happen. So here we have in the Ephesian church, for example, Jews and Gentiles on bended knee, side by side, worshiping God. Now, this section of Scripture begins with Paul calling on the Ephesians to remember, as we we said. He reminds the Gentile Christians at Ephesus that they once were Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So there's this ceremonial division, not just uh, the cultural division, uh, not just the national division, but there was this ceremony of circumcision. They didn't have the covenant mark in their flesh, which meant that they were excluded from the covenant. Remember, the covenant now is how God deals with his people. He says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, these are the terms, I want you to do these things, and, and I will do these other things graciously for you, and we will have this relationship. Well, uh, the Gentiles were excluded from that. They were not included in that uh, that covenant relationship. Now, the Jews took this fact that the Gentiles didn't have circumcision, this outward sign, and turned it into something else. Don't we all have a tendency to do that? To take things that are intended for one thing and end up twisting them or using them in a different way. And so they made the physical mark of circumcision, the be-all and the end-all of the whole matter. The only thing that mattered to them, for many of them, was the form. Do you have the form right? Did you check the box? Have you been circumcised? If you have, you're in. But as a result, having only the form, what they and leaving off the substance, they're left with what we would call formalism, which God hates. God loves form, but he hates formalism. Formalism is form without substance. It's it's missing the point. And so they lost sight of the true meaning. They had turned it into a fleshly thing only. But that is not what God intended. And Paul reminds us, for example, in Philippians 3.3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Nevertheless, not being circumcised was a real problem because it did put the Gentiles outside the covenant. Now this, this can get confusing. I found that for myself as I was studying this, trying to... Think of how to communicate this clearly. We've got two problems. You have the Gentiles who are not circumcised. That's a problem. They're outside the covenant, uh, just like we would say about those who haven't been baptized and who are outside the church. That's a problem. The Jews had another problem. That is, they took that circumcision and and, and twisted it, and it became, it meant something, uh, it, it got stripped of its substance. So Paul's addressing both of these problems. The Gentiles have a real problem, but the Jews have a different problem. So the division gets pushed further and further apart, and now he's going to show how Christ brings that back together. He deals with both of these particular problems. And so it it was, again, a problem that the Jews had perverted circumcision as a means of looking down upon the Gentiles, Now, our world is full of these sorts of prideful divisions of classes, races, and so forth. And I suggest that it's in your own heart. It's in my heart. We tend to look at anybody that's not just like us. And we have a judgment about them. And we assume they're inferior, that we're better. And we, we look around even. I think people do historically. We look around trying to find a group of people that are beneath us. So that we can feel superior. And whether you admit it or not, you do think that you are better than others, and in so doing, falsely assume, and here's the problem, you falsely assume, as the Jews did, that God himself is at least a little impressed with you. A little pleased with you. You're a little bit better than others. Just maybe a little, in some cases maybe a lot. But that's one of our prideful temptations. And so, the fact is that that itself is one of the things that his power works to overthrow. Like the Jews, you and I have nothing to be proud of in ourselves. Nothing. Zero. Period. Now, there are all kinds of efforts in the world to overcome our divisions and to bring about unity, but outside of Christ, they all fail. er, This early church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles, however, was at least a demonstration of the true unity that only can be achieved by God in Christ. They were now members of the same family. Now, you probably know what's wrong with everyone else around you, and you might be right about them, though you probably are not right, as right as you think you are. How aware are you concerning what's wrong with you? Perhaps we could ask them. Uh, I'm sure they would be happy to, to point those things out. Paul's point is that there is plenty wrong with all of us, but the power of God is mysteriously working to change that. Little by little... He is conforming each of us to the image of His Son. We we may start all over the map, from all different places and all different circumstances, but when God begins to work, He's drawing us to the same point. He has the same objective and the same goal for every one of us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And He begins by telling us the truth about ourselves. And when we look at Christ, then we're left with nothing to boast about. It turns out that all of us, Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, black or white, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, we all need the same mercy, love, grace, and kindness of God. We receive them together, and we share them together. Now back to the circumcision question. For many of the Jews... Circumcision in the flesh was everything, but they had missed the point and the meaning of circumcision. And, of course, we could do the same thing with baptism. Being circumcised or baptized is necessary. God calls for it. But the physical act is not sufficient. In other words, there's an argument, There's those things that are necessary, but not sufficient. We need something else. We need that. We do need that. That is necessary, but it is not The only thing we need. If that's all we get, we've fallen short. Paul makes this clear in Romans 2, 28-29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so, Paul asks in Romans 3, 1. So we got both of this going on. On the one hand, he says don't, don't assume that just because you've had circumcision or baptism, you've had the ritual, you've had this sign put on you, don't assume that that's all there is to it. There is more. And if you don't go to the next thing, to the spiritual aspect of this, you're going to come up short. So then the next question, as though he's arguing, fact, this is in another location in Romans, but the other side of the equation is, well, what advantage then is circumcision? Why, why even do it? Why, why should we baptize people? What advantage is it? And he says, much in every way. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> much in every way. Let me ask it this way. What advantage is it to be born into a Christian home? To be baptized. Much in every way. First, he says, you've been given the oracles of God. You've been given the Bible. You've been given God's Word. You've been given the Gospel. You've been given the remedy. You've been born in the hospital. you got doctors and nurses, pastors and parents who are applying the Word of God to you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. From the time you were a nursing baby, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. What advantage is it? much in every way? Is it possible to be born in that hospital and miss the remedy? Yes. You could have unfaithful churches, unfaithful pastors, unfaithful parents who leave their Bibles on the shelf or who pervert the Bible or who don't teach what the Bible says. It give you a false remedy. That's possible, but if indeed you have been born into a faithful Christian home, you have an advantage much in every way. And so, to summarize, circumcision as a sign of the covenant was necessary, but circumcision also had to be a matter of a clean heart to be effective. And we're going to say baptism replaces circumcision in the new covenant. Now, these were the circumstances under the Old Covenant, so why does Paul describe their situation, these Gentiles, when he's saying what where they used to be, and these Jews, that they were without Christ, being without Christ? Well, it's because everything in the Old Covenant was about Christ, and these Gentiles were cut off from that. They didn't have the ceremonial law. They didn't have a priesthood. They didn't have a tabernacle or temple. They didn't have the sacrifices. All of those were about Christ. They didn't have the prophets teaching them God's word. They didn't have those things. Remember in, in 1 Peter, it says, The prophets of old uh, desired to know what the Spirit of Christ within them was, was prophesying. That's the Old Testament prophets had the Spirit of Christ in them. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 11 Remember the New Testament is a an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. So you got it, the Old Testament prophets were told had the spirit of Christ in them and they were prophesying about what was coming in the person of Christ. Everything in the Old Testament was always about Christ. Everything pointed to him. Everything looked forward to him. Galatians 3 23 through 25, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the... I think he's referring here to the ceremonial law, those things I just mentioned, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, circumcision, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. There's the new covenant. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So we're going to see the Old Testament ceremonial law fade away. We don't need it anymore once Christ has come. So the Gentiles were without Christ, and many of the Jews, though promised Christ, also missed the point. He says that you were aliens from the commonwealth. He describes them, again, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. A commonwealth is a community of people that are governed with a common law. They're citizens. So God formed a community for himself, and he set his law over his people. That was That's his way of salvation. Again, he doesn't do it individually. He He does work with individuals, of course, but he always does it in the context of that community, that communion. He said to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, we're not going to be wooden here in our interpretation of that. Obviously, God knew the Canaanites and He knew the Egyptians. He knew who they were, where they were. He knew the hairs on their heads as well. But what He's saying here is I, I knew Israel in a special way, in a covenantal way, in a, in a intimate way. It was by way of this community that He would bring His Son, His Messiah, into the world. And so to be... Without Christ means being outside of that commonwealth, outside of God's people, uh, with whom God has a saving interest. The church corresponds to the commonwealth of Israel. The church is Israel now. So, he goes on to say, you were also, not only were you out aliens and strangers uh, to the co- from the commonwealth, you were strangers from the covenants of promise. Since you were outside that community where the oracles of God were, where the ceremonies were, where everything that pointed to Christ was, you were out there, he says to the Gentiles. As a result, you were strangers to the promises that God had made. Remember, what Paul's trying to emphasize to these Gentile Christians, which, by the way, includes almost all of you and me, is that God's power did something to change all this in Christ. So you'll recall that God had made covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and David. All of these contained promises. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant is called the covenant of promise, and all those promises pointed to Christ. With Adam, after the fall, he says, I'm going to, you know, the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the head uh, bruised the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That was the first promise of Christ in the Adamic covenant. He continues to make those covenants with Noah again and Abraham and Moses and David and all of these promises. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, he says to Abraham, "...in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." Because you have obeyed my voice. And you remember in the New Testament we read that Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced. Paul expanded on this in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. The Gentiles didn't have that promise. All these promises were repeated and the covenants renewed along the way. They were preached by the prophets. And all of this was looking forward to Christ, to the Messiah, who would bring all this to a glorious climax. And he says, I'm not through yet. Not only were you aliens from the commonwealth, not only were you strangers to the covenants of promise. In fact, let me summarize it with this awful diagnosis. You have no hope. You are without God in this world. Now, to be without hope is the worst thing that could possibly be said. To be lost, hopelessly lost, leaves us in despair. There is, first of all, no hope in this life. This life's meaningless, there is no meaning to the pleasures and there is no meaning to the troubles and the pains. The professional philosophers of this world sometimes start out optimistic, but they always end in skepticism and pessimism. King Solomon set out to explore all the world and all that it has to offer under the sun. He said, I'm going to assume in the book of Ecclesiastes for the moment that there is no God and there is no eternity. Let's just look at the world and life under the sun. And he conducts all kinds of experiments with pleasure, with education, with music, with wine, uh, with science, and his conclusion over and over and over that if this is it, then all is vanity. It doesn't mean anything. And And so... Then he says, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. This is it. And as if that weren't enough, not only is there no hope in this world, of course if there's no hope in this life, then there's certainly no hope beyond this life. And if they're not in communion with God now, they will not be in communion with him then You see, everything is wrong in the world. So Paul has described what we were without Christ, or what we would be without Christ. And it is important we grasp just how bad it really was, if we are to grasp just how good it really is in Christ. You've got to understand how bad your diagnosis was if you're going to comprehend how good the remedy is. And so, we come again to one of my favorite words in Scripture. But. This sets up the contrast. But now. Now. This isn't a little difference. It's a sharp distinction. It's night and day. It's death and life. It's no hope versus hope. This is not a gradual shift. It's one or the other. This is why I often find, remind young people who are in search of a spouse. The answer to the question, is he or she, a Christian, cannot be ambiguous. Ambiguous. No, maybe, or perhaps, or I think so, or I hope so, or I'm pretty sure. If that's all that can be said of them, or of you by the way, then you better slam the brakes on and get that matter settled clearly. Now quickly through the last part of this passage, he says, But now you're in Christ Jesus. What makes the difference is your position, your relationship to God. You are either in Christ or you are not. Paul does not say, but now you have improved. He says, no, but now you are in Christ. You are united to Him. You are in the second Adam. That's who you identify with. You're now part of this new creation, this new humanity. This means, he says, you have been brought near. Near to what? Well, you were aliens and strangers, and now you've been made citizens of the commonwealth, and you've been made partakers of the promises of the covenant that God made with the commonwealth. You were far off, and now you're near. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the crowd of Jewish men that have gathered from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost, and as he's preaching, the men ask of Peter, what shall we do? And Peter responds to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. And I remember he's speaking to a, a group of Jewish men. And when he said the promise, they, they would have, their ears would have perked up. They would have known that language because God had made the promise to Abraham, and Peter actually gives them a version of that promise made to Abraham. He says, he says to them, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's, what, that's the language God gave to Abraham, the promise he gave to him, and now Peter says it's, it's upon us, it's here. The fulfillment of that promise. This was that familiar formula of the Abrahamic promise that included Abraham and Abraham's children and the Gentiles. So Abraham's children would have been the circumcised, and the and the Gentiles would have been the uncircumcised. So now the promise in Christ is being extended to the whole world. They were without God and without hope, but now all of that is changed. Because now they've been brought in and they've been brought near. And all those promises are theirs now. Do you remember how at the temple at Jerusalem it was divided into different areas and at the center was the Holy of Holies, where God was? Only the high priest could go in there and he could only go in once a year. And furthest away in that geography of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. What Paul is saying in this passage is that those who were the furthest away have now been brought into the holiest of holies. You used to have to stay out there. By the way, the narthex means the wheat field. And in the old days of the church, early church, if you weren't baptized, you couldn't come in here. This was the sanctuary, the font, the baptismal font would have been sitting at the entryway, and only the baptized could have actually come into the sanctuary, and others could stay out there and listen, but they couldn't come in. That was the wheat field. That was the parallel to the court of the Gentiles. You can listen, you can hear, but you can't come in until you've received the covenant sign. Then you can come into the sanctuary, which is like the belly of the ark. Notice the nautical feel of this building. This is the ship. This is Noah's Ark. The place of salvation. So that's, that's the picture here. What Paul is saying in this passage then, that those who were out in the court now can come in. Not just come in in here, but all the way in. All the way into the Holy of Holies, where God is. This is the most critical truth about all Christians. We have been brought near into the presence of God by Christ. This is the reverse of what happened to Adam and Eve in in paradise. After they sinned, they were driven out of paradise, and God placed cherubim at the entrance with flaming swords to make sure they couldn't come back in. That's what sin did. And we find these same cherubim embroidered on the veil in the temple that kept sinners from coming into the Holy of Holies. There was still a separation, because Christ did not come yet. And until the sin is fully removed, until the wrath is removed, there is no access to God, but the blood of Christ makes atonement for our sins. I love to remember the word atonement. At-one-ment. At-one-ment. He made us one. How? By the blood. There is nothing you or I can do to bring ourselves into the presence of God. It's something that is done to you and for you by God through the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ means by the death of Christ. Our sins have to be expiated. They have to be paid for. They have to be removed. They have to be swept up and gotten out of the way. John the Baptist recognized this work of Christ when he saw Christ coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like all the animals that were sacrificed under the old covenant, which were types of Christ. Now Jesus, the perfect Paschal Lamb, is sacrificed on our behalf. The wages of sin is death, and therefore the penalty has to be paid. And as as Hebrews instructs us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. All the covenants of the past were ratified by blood. And now the superior new covenant is ratified by blood by the superior blood of the Son of God. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Again, Hebrews 13, 20, Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And so, our identity in Christ is the central fact of our existence. Don't skate past that. Don't let that roll through one ear and out the other. It will change your life. It will change your marriage. It will change your relationships. It will change everything you do the more you grasp who you are in Christ. Who we are is tied up in Him. We have been purchased by Him. We're not our own. We are united to Him. Individually and corporately, which means we are identified also with each other. What you do this week affects everybody in this room. Whether you sin or whether you pursue righteousness. Whether you grow or don't grow. When you're not in fellowship at home, it affects the rest of us. When you're in fellowship at home, it affects the rest of us. We're always connected in Christ. Think about it. If all of us went home this week and were committed to growing in Christ, pursuing the kingdom of God in our relationships at home, raising our kids to the glory of God, forgiving one another, loving one another, being kind and tender hearted toward one another as Christ is to us, imitating Him, if we do that at home all week and then we come back here, are we going to be better? See, when you do better, I do better. And when you do poorly, I do poorly. We're connected. And so this is important. We're all counting on you in Christ to remember who you are and why you're here. We are a communion because he made us one. We identify as Christians. Let's pray. Father, help us to see more clearly who... And what we would be without Christ and who we are in Christ. May our baptisms be far more than the ceremonial and physical acts of applying water. May our baptisms point to the truth that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, that we have been made part of the commonwealth of Israel, and that we have become the true recipients of the covenants of promise. We are grateful that we are no longer without hope and that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. In uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on Ephesians, chapter 2, he ties this passage to the institution of the Lord's Supper, and I want to read two paragraphs here uh, in this regard. There is only one way whereby even Christ can bring me nigh unto God, and that is by His blood by his death, by his broken body, by his shed blood, by his life poured out. That is why he instituted the Lord's Supper with the broken bread and the poured out wine as a perpetual reminder that his death is the only way to God. We see there the wondrous foreknowledge of God in Christ, knowing how ready men are to fall into error and into heresy, he established, he commanded, he ordained the Lord's Supper. Bread, wine, broken bread, poured out wine, that it might perpetually preach the fact that there is the only that, that is the only way into the presence of God. The veil is his own body, it must be rent. The death of Christ, it is only by the death of Christ, by the blood of Christ that one can be made nigh unto God. In the second paragraph, uh, further in the commentary, he says, Have you noticed how the Lord Jesus Christ, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, took the cup when he had supped and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Have you noticed how Paul reminds the Corinthians of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Those are the terms. The covenant is ratified by blood. In other words, the new covenant between God and man would not be sure for, un- for us unless Christ's blood had been sprinkled upon it. That is the seal. That guarantees it. All your works praise you, O Lord, and your saints give thanks unto you. We open our mouths to bless your holy name. We are especially grateful today for the kind providence you've shown us in times of delight and in times of trial. Indeed, you have worked all things together for our good in Christ. We gratefully receive your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have brought us, one by one, to participate in this covenant community of your saints. To live, to love, and to serve together. We thank you for all the faithful saints that have gone before us. For fathers and mothers, uncles and aunts, friends and neighbors, pastors and elders, as well as strangers. For all those who have adorned the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who have served and prayed, who have lived and proclaimed, who have sacrificed and died For here we sit as the benefactors of your grace and your saints. Keep us, we pray, that we too might have the blessing of participation in the work of your kingdom. That the generation to come might know your works. The children who would be born. That they might arise and declare them to their children. That they might set their hope in God and not forget your works. Lord, you have made us a people before you. You have given us a name. You have given us a place to worship. You've given us a people to serve and love. You have fed us and built us up. You have given us friends and families. You have provided food and shelter. You have given us great cause to rejoice and celebrate in Christ. Bless now our feast and our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen.